Well, good morning, hearty souls, and all that comes with it this morning. I know it's kind of a weather morning, as I told the first service, but I'm glad you're here. And uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, I hope you sense a warm welcome uh, at Christ's community in a cold day. So we're really, really glad you're here. Well, if I were to ask you a question, and here's the question, you ready? How would you respond? What does God want from you? What does God want from me? Perhaps it's a question you ask. And if you have a faith in God, or maybe you're seeking uh, that faith again, or back to church, whatever, that question not only is the reality of who God is, but what does God want from me is a part of all of our conversations. Again, if I were to ask you that question, what does God want for you, how would you respond? You may say, well, God wants me to be a good person, and that's a good thing, by the way, <laughs> better than a bad person, so I want you to know, uh, to treat others kindly, to do good in the world, good things. Or you may say, if you've heard a lot of preachers and TV personalities, God wants your money, <laughs> or your accomplishments, or maybe you're thinking, God wants my Sunday morning, you know, that precious time from 9.15 or 11 o'clock, that's not exactly, you know, 9 and 10.45, just a little bit there for you, um, just in case you know when we start, just wanted to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> Some of you are awake today. Uh, it's a good thing. Or maybe you concluded that God wants you to be successful in your career, and you've heard uh, television personalities say, God wants your best life now. He wants you to be healthy, beautiful, happy in your personal life. But what does God want from us? What does God want from you? What does God want from me? How we answer this question profoundly shapes the interior of our lives and the trajectory of our lives. This is not a new question humans ask in seeking reality and life and the good life. It's a question the Apostle Paul asked in the first century. It's a question that the people of Corinth asked, so Paul addresses this question in the text we're going to look at this morning. If you remember, if you've been here for a few weeks, you know as a church family, and if you're newer, we, again, we want to welcome you. We are walking through the New Testament book called 1 Corinthians, a letter Paul penned to the first century church at Corinth, Greece. And as Paul writes, Paul had been with them about a year and a half. Think of Pastor Paul, establishing them in their faith, but they were really struggling big time. So Paul sits down and writes a letter to them, this inspired book we call 1 Corinthians. Paul wants his readers and his friends at Corinth to grow up spiritually. He wants them to experience the immeasurable riches of gospel-centered faith. The question lurking under the text this morning is the question, what does God want from you and me? Now, if we understand Paul's letter, we'll know that the first four chapters are really a unit that launches beginning chapter 5 in the rest of the book. So Paul's writing has a very thick thread of continuity from chapter 1 to chapter 4. In chapter 2, if you're here with us, Paul says to the Corinthian people, you know, you like wisdom, after all, you're Greek. God wants you to wise up. But in order to wise up, you need to realize that the wisdom God gives finds its intersection in the cross. It is revealed in the Holy Spirit. You need spiritual wisdom in order to grow up. Then in chapter 3, as we looked at last week, Paul continues, not only do they need to wise up, 
They need to keep growing up, and the threat of their life is spiritual pride. Spiritual pride has impeded their spiritual growth. And as I said last week, spiritual pride in all of our lives, wherever we are in our spiritual life, is like kryptonite for Superman. It immobilizes us. So they have stopped dead in their tracks in their spiritual growth. They are spiritual infants. And Paul says to them, God wants you to grow up, Corinthians. So he says, wise up, grow up. And now in chapter 4, as he continues his theme, he will say to the Corinthians and to you and me, who are struggling in our faith and struggling in their faith, as we come to chapter 4, he says to the Corinthians, okay, it's time to put aside the heady stuff of success and pursue the humble stuff of faithfulness. He wants them to understand that now, if they wise up and grow up, they will pursue faithfulness. And this is the thread of continuity in his train of thought. And the question for the Corinthians of the first century and the questions for all of us, the main question is, what does faithfulness look like? What does it mean to pursue faithfulness? You see, we know what success looks like, don't we? You know, for a student, what's success look like? Straight A's. I mean, we kind of know that, right? We hit the target, we feel good about ourselves, right? Or our family, if our family's getting along, our marriage is good, you know, we kind of know what success is. Or in our business, we know the rate of return or the top line or bottom line or we know the trajectory of our sales. We know what success is. But do we know what faithfulness looks like? This is an important question because underlying a life well lived the life of human flourishing, is this question, what is faithfulness? Because that's the key. So in chapter 4 of Corinthians, Paul will address this question. So if you have your Bible with you, whether it's electronic or paper, I'd like you to open it uh, and follow along as we enter this inspired text. Now, Paul is a brilliant writer, and he brings not only utility of, of truth, but he brings aesthetic of style. What you might imagine as you enter it is with literary flair. In fact, this chapter, he has the highest literary flair because he will bring tinges of sarcasm and irony woven together, and he will do three brushstrokes, you might think of, that accent the landscape of Christian faithfulness. Three brushstrokes. So this chapter, with his literary pen on the inspired canvas of Holy Scripture, he gives us three brushstrokes of what faithfulness looks like. Got it? So as you're following along, as you're putting sort of the scaffolding in your mind or you're taking notes, this is the progression of Paul's thought. In verses 1 through 5, he gives us the first brushstroke that we're going to look at. And Paul will say, what does faithfulness look like? It means living before an audience of one, verses 1 through 5. Then he will hinge it in a literary sense in verses 6 through 7. And he'll say, it's not only having an audience of one, it's stewarding all we've been given. Stewarding all we've been given. Then, on a proportional level, he begins in verse 8 all the way through the end of the chapter with the third brushstroke on his inspired canvas of this landscape of faithfulness, and that is we are to learn to follow well. So an audience of one stewarding all we have and learning to follow well. So let's dive into his thoughts of this chapter. I'd like to read verses 1 through 5 again carefully and listen again to God's Word. This is how one should regard us, Paul writes, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, or don't miss this, it is essential or it is required. If you like bottom lines, this is a language of bottom lines. Some people love bottom lines. Some people love mysteries and untetheredness. But if you're a bottom line person, 
Paul is really bottom lining this moment. Okay, so I don't want you to miss this. It is required. Here's the bottom line. That they may be found faithful. This is going to set the whole flow of the chapter. But with me, he writes, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the human heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, with his logic in mind, Paul begins with the end in mind in his logic of thought. Paul emphasizes, if you'll notice, that to live before an audience of one, we must keep the end in mind. So he reminds all of us and his readers and his, his listeners of the future day that we will all, all of us, will stand before God. Each one of us, one day, will give an account of our life before a holy God. And if this sounds like Jesus' teaching, you are right. In fact, the words echo Jesus' teaching, particularly out of the parable or the story in Matthew 25 called the parable of the talents. When three financial managers are summoned by their owner, the, who owns the resources, to give an account of their work. And uh, this story is told to describe all of us in our life and our work will stand before God and two of the managers hear the master or hear God say, well done, right? Good and there it is, faithful servant. Paul intentionally builds the echoing of our mind through this language of faithfulness and servant. You will notice in the text the echoing of Jesus' teaching here. It is very, very vivid. Two key words emerge in the text. If you're looking, notice servants and stewards. Followers of Jesus are servants, not celebrities. Paul has spent a whole chapter unpacking the challenges of the Corinthian church that had put celebrity leaders on pedestals out of spiritual pride, and we talked a lot about that last week. But Paul continues that theme, lest we miss it, that followers of Jesus are servants, not celebrities. Now, in the original language, Paul does something unique and important that English does not capture well. Because in English, we primarily have one word called servant, but in Greek, we have several of them. So in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul has already highlighted a servant idea. That's one Greek word, but now he shifts in a literary style with a semantic range that brings a really important meaning that English misses. Okay? So I want to unpack it for just a moment. This word for servant means not a slave, but a helper. Um, like an assistant to another really important person. You might think, uh, you know, I love good food. I mean, I love good food. I love chefs. I love chef shows. Um, love to go to good restaurants. And restaurants are known, good restaurants, by their lead chef. But you have no idea who the salad chef is, right? Or the dishwasher or someone helping cut vegetables for the chef. They are an assistant to the chef. Or how many of us are basketball fans, right? Uh, Big 12 or SEC or whatever, right? I'm sure you're all Jayhawk fans or Mizzou fans or whatever, K-State fans. Um, and you know, you, you know the players, you know the coaches, you follow the schedules, and only the most intense fan knows who the equipment manager is. Correct? 
I mean, you know, you might know that and you're going to win a trivia quiz. But I'm, you know, a Jayhawk fan or whatever. I have no idea who the equipment manager is. The equipment manager matters. But they are an assistant. One of the shows I loved, and uh, I know it was on the edge at times, so no emails, okay? I mean, just, you know, you can pray for my sanctification and my prayer for me, <laughs> my lack of holiness. It's The Office. Nine seasons. <laughs> Nine seasons, a show. Unbelievable. And again, if you follow it all, you know that, I, at least I think, that one of the secrets to the sauce is the, is the brilliant casting. No more brilliant casting. My favorite person on the show is Dwight Schrute. <laughs> now, if you follow the show, Dwight Schrute is always angling to be in with the boss. He wants to have a higher position. He wants to be, what, assistant manager to Michael Scott. So this goes on and on and on, and Michael Scott will not trust him with that power because he's a completely demented, anyway, uh, power-hungry guy. And so he allows Dwight Schrute to be called the assistant to the manager, not assistant manager. Got it? This is what Paul is saying with this Greek word. He is saying we are just not even assistant managers. We are assistant to the manager, to Master Jesus. That's how far down we are. We are important, but it's all about him. The original readers and listeners would have understood that. He doesn't want us to miss it. The Corinthian people are starstruck with celebrity Christian leaders. Paul brings it home. Notice, secondly, the word steward. You see that? Paul says we are stewards, not owners. Everything we have, he says, belongs ultimately to another. And Rabbi Paul, or the Apostle Paul, understands the Old Testament psalm where the psalmist said, the earth is the Lord's and what? Everything in it, that's everything is his. Nothing is ours. We're just stewards of it. Paul uses the word mystery. The word in the Christian faith has much mystery in it. I hope you don't miss that. But in this context, this Greek word has the idea of, in the context, what has not been revealed before, but now is revealed in Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, and the gospel, the cross. This was not known in Old Testament days. Now this mystery that was hidden has now been revealed in Jesus Christ, and it's the path to the cross. You'll notice in the text Paul says, this is what God wants from you and me. What God wants from us in verse 2 is what? It is required that we be found, what? Faithful. We don't use that word very much anymore. It simply means, right, in English, faithful, full of faith, full of trust in God. And we must not forget that a life of faithfulness is a long obedience in the same direction. It is a joint divine human enterprise. Paul uses the word uh, translated faithful in the same exact way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. In Galatians 5, 22, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and what? Faithfulness. Exact same word. And the connection is here. What we must not miss, and I do not want you to miss, is that faithfulness is something we attach onto a busy, cluttered life. 
or an unchanged life. Faithfulness is lived from the inside out, friends. And it's lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul unpacks this powerfully in chapter 2 on the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. You and I cannot live a life of God-honoring faithfulness without the Holy Spirit's continual guidance and empowerment. And the remarkable news of the gospel is that it frees us to live before this audience of one that we affectionately love and cherish and honor. Osgin is a friend of Christ's community in a brilliant book called The Call, which I highly recommend to you, captures well what this audience of one means. That might be foreign language to you, and he captures it well. He says, living before the audience of one transforms all our endeavors. That is why Christ-centered heroism, I love this, does not need to be noticed or publicized. The greatest deeds are done before the audience of one, and that is enough. Those who are seen and sung by the audience of one can afford to be careless about lesser audiences. Living before an audience of one as a faithful servant, a steward of the mystery of God, of the gospel itself, is the most joy-filled free way to live. Why? Because it was how we were designed to live in the Garden of Eden long ago before sin and death entered the world. We were created to live before an audience of one with joy and intimacy and love and worship. Living before an audience of one frees us in Christ from the suffocating soul tyranny of seeking others' approval to feel good about ourselves, Or the paralyzing fear some of us are dealing with of rejection from others. Paul is saying, as a beloved child of God in the gospel, we have nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to prove. We are cherished and safe in his unconditional, secure love. That is so compellingly awesome. The question for us is, what audience are you living before, friends? You know, the way to help understand the audience, if you're living, and I'm living before the audience, one versus lesser audience, is to ask two diagnostic questions. Let me ask them briefly. First, the way you can tell is what approval or whose approval are you seeking in life? Today, this week, your parents, your friends at school, your boss, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Maybe you're a student, you're getting ready to graduate, you're considering, you know, what you should do afterwards and friends are going to prestigious colleges, you just don't know what you're supposed to do and they ask you what you're going to do and you make something up. You ever done that? Or stretch it. Because you're seeking their approval rather than seeking God's will. And if you're in God's will, it doesn't matter on that what other people think of what choice you make if you're following him. So many of our decisions are so distorted because we follow other people's approval rather than Jesus. God has a unique call for you, whatever that is. Or maybe you're working way too long hours. You know, at Christ Community, we speak a lot about why work matters. It matters a great deal. But work can matter too much in your life. Especially when you neglect your family or your marriage or your health or your time alone with Christ because you want your boss's approval more than Jesus' honor and faithfulness. Whose approval are you seeking? Secondly, a question that's so important that's often missed is who are you aware of most throughout the day in your life? Is it yourself? 
Is it your friends? Your coworkers? Or is it the intimate presence of the resurrected Jesus, the tender intimacy of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, that walks with you and talks with you and tells you you are his own? As you work, as you wait on customers, as you change diapers, as you make dinner for your family, who's your audience? Paul reminds us that a faithful life has an audience of one. Secondly, he reminds us that it involves stewarding everything we've been given. Look at verses six and seven. This is a hinge in the literary structure of this text. I have applied all these things to myself. And Apollos, for your benefit, brothers or sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. Remember, he talks a lot about pride. Remember, just watch that. In favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is not the original language, but the intimation is there. You've got to be kidding me. This question in the Greek text is an incredulity. You've got to be kidding me. What do you have, Corinthians? What does Tom have in intellect or gifts or whatever that God has not given him or you and me? Time, talent, and treasure. Nothing. And notice how Paul begins this. I love this. Don't you love this about Paul? He explicitly says, I'm practicing what I'm preaching and Apollos is too. Paul is not talking the talk, only he's walking the walk. See, the gospel is not only something we speak and we hear. The gospel is something we live and others observe around us by our life. It's both. And spiritual pride is an ever-present danger in my life and in each one of your lives as well. That's why Lewis calls it the ultimate vice. It is. It's insidious. And it's destructive in your life and mine. Notice Paul connects verse 2 and verse 7 around the theme in this penetrating question of stewardship. What do you have, Corinthians, that you have not been given? He's, he's basically, quit taking credit for what you haven't done or your leaders haven't done. Get your eyes on Jesus. Get them off each other that way. But it's really easy to take credit for what is, we shouldn't, isn't it? It is for me. Man, do I have to check my spirit on that. Recently, I was at another place having a conversation and speaking to a group of people and some person came up to me and said, I hear you're writing this and, um, and I said, yeah. And they said, we're really excited to see it. And I had a choice to make right there because I've asked someone else to write some things with me on this project. And right away I had an opportunity, right, to say, oh, thank you. Or do I say, you know, I'm really excited to write with my brother so-and-so on this project. But I had to make a decision there, and I just wanted to take the credit and bask in it. Now, it might not be writing. What is it in your life? What is it that you take credit for that God has brought into your life? Your gifts, your talent, your money, your friends, your accomplishments. Paul is saying it's really all a matter of grace. It's all a gift. Everything. Pride has a way of sneaking up on us all, and this way Paul will keep hitting it, chapter one, two, three, and four. <laughs> There's an ever-present danger to this, and one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, if you love the Old Testament, kids, Daniel, kids at heart, don't you love the story of Daniel, lion's den and all that, right? It's really good, but there's a great story in chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar 
you know, is getting too big for his britches. Can I use that language? He's starting to get really full of himself. He has a big city that he has developed called Babylon. He's a big, bad dude in a big, bad place. And one day in chapter 4, the picture of Daniel chapter 4 is that Neb's pacing back and forth in his royal palace. That's what kings do when they're bored and fill with himself. And he looks across Babylon, which is one of the ancient wonders of the world, by the way. So it was a stunning place. He said, look what I've done. Isn't this great? And most importantly, he said, Isn't, ain't I great? Can I use it in English? Ain't I great? But the ultimate one who is great had a big cosmic two-by-four for King Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) And he has it for you and me out of love. God loved King Neb so much that he needed to teach him a lesson about humility and who really is the boss and who really owns it all and who really does it all. You talk about assistant to the assistant to the assistant to the manager. Don't you love the end? And if you have your Bible, end of Daniel 4, you can look later. The last words are this. The end. And those who walk in pride, God is able, he, God is able to humble. You better believe it in your life and mine. Are you living a life of faithfulness? Faithfulness is always lived from the inside out. Life of faithfulness takes stewardship seriously. We are just stewards. Stewardship of our vocations, our work, whatever they may be, whether we're paid or not. Let's remember Jesus spent the vast majority of his time on planet Earth in a remote carpenter's shop with holy sweat on his brow and sawdust on his hands doing his work, living a faithful life before his Father. And that's where you and I are called the vast majority of our life. Are you faithful in your vocation? Are you faithful steward of your relationships with others, your friends, your family, your neighbors? Are you truly loving others? Are you loving your spouse? Are you providing that emotional place of support for your children, your spouse, and your close friends? Are you stewarding your precious relationships God has given you well? Lastly, are you stewarding, am I stewarding the financial resources God has given me? Financial stewardship is a part of a faithful life. It's not the only thing, but without it, we don't live a faithful life. It's been said often there are two conversions to the Christian faith. One, the conversion of our heart. Secondly, the conversion of our purse, and that's right. So does your budget, your checkbook, your bank accounts, your investments, your wealth reflect disciplined spending? Does it reflect prudent saving and generous giving to the household of God, the local church, which is God's design? What does Christian faithfulness look like? Living before an audience of one, stewarding all we have, and lastly, learning to follow well. This is where Paul spends a lot of time. Verses 8 through 21, you'll notice I encourage you to feel the twinge of sarcasm and ironies. Okay, big shots. That's basically what you say if you read it. Okay, big shots, you're really cool. You think leadership's really cool? You really want to do this? Let me tell you what spiritual leadership is. Look how immature you are. Look at your spiritual pride. You have no clue. That's what he says with sarcasm. And in verses 8 to 13, you'll notice the language of ruling and reigning. So he's speaking about leadership. He's saying, Corinthians, you need to shift your paradigm about leadership. Paul says, look at us. It's not a bed of roses, guys. 
To lead is not a celebrity life. It is to follow Jesus. It's a cross life of sacrifice, of service, of hardship, of caring for the vulnerable, of justice. Spiritual leadership is not a path to popularity. Eugene Peterson beautifully trans or paraphrases verse 13. I love this. He says, we're treated like garbage, potato peelings from the culture's kitchen. I mean, what do you do with peelings after potatoes? I mean, you know, in low-carb diets, we never eat those anymore, right? But what do you do with those things? What about a compost pile? I mean, they're worth what? He says, that's what spiritual leadership often looks like. others. Not exactly a pedestal. Potato peels. Now you'll notice in verses 14 to 21, he urges them to douse their spiritual pride with a fresh dose of humility and teachability. Max Dupree, who wrote a great deal about leadership, outstanding, says this. The first responsibility of leadership is to define reality. We often hear that quote, but he keeps going. The last responsibility is to say thank you. Everything in between the first and the last, the leader is a humble servant. Rather than following celebrity leaders that love the spotlight in Corinth and with so much factualism and so much toxicity, Paul says, we are servants who love you. I don't know if you've read a lot of Flannery O'Connor, but if you haven't read this brilliant American writer, she died at 39. She says this, she said, people think faith is a cozy electric blanket when, of course, it is a cross. Paul says, look to the cross of Jesus, look to me. As your spiritual father, imitate me. Notice verse 16. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now, if you've been following, you may think Paul is talking out of both sides of his mouth. He says, don't follow these leaders, now follow me. (laughs) But his point is not to put him on a prideful pedestal, but rather to learn from him as he follows Jesus. Learn from his words and his way of life. He will say this again and give you a heads up in chapter 11, verse 1. You can be way ahead of the preacher or teacher who's doing that that morning, right? Paul puts it this way, 11.1, look at it. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Spiritual growth and transformation happens not only when we follow Jesus and imitate him, but when we imitate others who are apprentices of Jesus too. That's how God designed it. I have a little beautiful neighbor. Um, My neighbor is almost two years old. His name is Liam. And uh, Liam is awesome. Liam LaRue. And uh, Liam loves his dad, and I always see Liam acting like his dad. And yesterday... Liam was out getting mail with his dad with a big old plunger. The plunger was as big as him. Because dad and Liam had been doing some plumbing. And Liam is looking to his dad and becoming like his dad. See, we were created in community and recreated in the local church community to learn from one another, to imitate, to learn, to grow together. So let me ask a couple questions. Because if we don't learn to follow well, we'll never end up well. We won't. And if we don't learn from others well, we will never end up well. So how do we follow well? Lots of books on leading well, right? Not a lot on following well. Let me raise three questions. I'd like you to write them down and think about them. Or three statements, I'm sorry. 
To lead well, we must follow well. First, three reminders of faithfulness. Follow Jesus well, but also follow your leaders well. The church is designed to do life together in a local place where we can be known and known, to, be, to know and to be known. It is not a distance through a screen or through some computer program or, I mean, maybe that has a place at times, but the local church is designed to be incarnational. There's a wonderful book called Heroic Leadership. It's one of the best books written on leadership, I think, in the last 30 years. It's written from another tradition than ours, a Jesuit tradition. It's called Heroic Leadership, and the Jesuits understood this, as we are all leaders and we are all leading all the time, often in small, unintended ways. See, we lead everywhere because we're made in God's image. Not all of us have the gift of leadership. Not all of us have a position of leadership in the church, but we all call to lead. To lead well, we must follow well first. Leadership is first and foremost followership. It's not influence. Because in our followership of the brilliant, most awesome, glorified leader, Jesus Christ, we follow. That is the focus of our leadership, is to follow him well. Leadership is apprenticeship with Jesus and submission, first and foremost. Without that, we are just a gonging symbol. primary metaphor of leadership in the Bible is of a shepherd. We see it all the way through. We don't see many shepherds today, right? Shepherds are always with sheep. They're not distant. They're not detached overseers. Local church leadership is life on life. It is basin and towel servanthood. It is not pedestal celebrities. I've been reading a wonderful book or actually rereading a book by Eugene Peterson called The Pastor. It's a memoir of his life. He says this, my work is not to fix people, it's to lead people in the worship of God and to lead them to a holy life. Follow Jesus well first, but follow leaders well too. Secondly, listen to your leader's words, but watch their life, watch their life. Be observant and discerning of the spiritual leaders you follow. Is there a consistency between their words and their life? Not perfection, but consistency, integrity, and transparency. First and foremost, spiritual leaders are teachers by their words and their life. So the question is, for your discernment, are your leaders staying true to the biblical text that we are under its authority of inspiration? It's not what the teacher wants it to say, not what we feel it says, not what we think it says. It's what the original authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit intended to say, and they intended to say something we can learn through grammar, syntax, and so forth. We must not miss it. This is why teachers of the Bible need to be very well trained and very well vetted, both for competency and character. Are they being faithful to what the biblical author says in coded language? Or is it some subjective inspiration? Are they being faithful to God's word? Also, how do they treat others? The big, the small, right? The who's who, the who's that. The Corinthians are so starstruck with celebrity status, with success, with bigness. And Paul's saying, are they the real deal? Are they filled with themselves or the Holy Spirit? They can't be both. There's not room for both. A big ego and the power of the Holy Spirit don't go together. Are they building their kingdom or Christ's kingdom? 
Third, nurture a critical mind, but not a critical spirit. Following our spiritual leaders well requires constant vigilance and prayer. We love critical minds who help us, who engage with us, who teach us. We're learners too, you know. We're on a journey too, but a critical spirit is one of the most agonizing things for a spiritual leader to deal with. Bitter, critical spirits. We must be a teachable people who learn from our leaders. We need to be willing to be challenged to greater spiritual growth and Christ-likeness of life. At times, if you don't leave when Pastor Andrew or Pastor Kevin or whoever's teaching, don't leave here a bit challenged with your own life, then we are not doing our job. Of course, in love and grace. This is not about being comfortable, but it's about being a disciple of Jesus Christ and to keep growing in apprenticeship with Jesus. You should feel at times uncomfortable if we're teaching God's word right and we're passionate about it. And I should feel uncomfortable when I teach it as well because it's first me to live it. One of the best indicators of whether we have a critical spirit toward our leaders is whether we pray regularly for God's blessing and protection Last, or yesterday, we had a delightful time. A lot of the men in this campus, we gathered and had a little Q&A time, I guess called Tom Unplugged. And one of the most wonderful moments is many of the men of the church gathered around me and then Pastor Andrew and another pastor and prayed for us. You could not believe that made my whole week. We can't do this alone, team. We were not designed to do it alone. We need to do this together. What does God want from you and me? He doesn't want the heady stuff of success, but the humble stuff of faithfulness. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says to us, Christ's community, wise up, wise up, grow up and pursue faithfulness. Faithfulness is always from the inside out. I learned a ton about a faithful life at the feet of my mom. My mom, in words and deeds, she's with the Lord now, lived a faithful life before my eyes. One of my mom's spiritual mentors was a 19th century writer by the name of Hannah Whitehall Smith, a brilliant writer of the Christian life. My mom, after um, Liz and I were married not too long, sent a quote from Hannah Whitehall Smith, I still have my mom's writing, uh, to my bride Liz. And here are Hannah Whitehall Smith's words. They're a little longer but I want you to listen in closing. I have noticed that wherever there has been a faithful following of the Lord in a consecrated soul, several things inevitably follow sooner or later. Humility, quietness of spirit, become in time the characteristics of the daily life. A submissive acceptance of the will of God as it comes in the hourly events of each day. Pliability in the hands of God to do or suffer all the good pleasure of his perfect will. Sweetness, under provocation, calmness in the midst of turmoil and bluster, yieldedness to the wishes of others, and insensibility to slights and affronts and absence of worry and anxiety. Deliverance from care and fear. All these Hannah Whitehall Smith writes in many similar spaces and graces are invariably found to be the natural outward development of that inward life which is hid with Christ in God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, in the power of your spirit and your grace, may we be people of faithfulness for your glory. Amen.